Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Crow. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, uh, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I started I started as an individual contributor uh, way back in the olden days. I, I graduated from college right about the time the first dot com was ramping up, and so I and I felt really attracted to working at small internet companies. Um, things were very new and exciting back then. Um, you know, it was like a new frontier, and I was really interested in jumping into that. So um, that led me to doing years of hands-on uh, backend work, uh, mostly at internet startups. I, I did work at some larger size companies and, and in between. Um, but always my my passion was for smaller teams, smaller team environments, smaller companies. And then that naturally led to taking on some leadership roles, some more formal management roles. I became a director of engineering. And then more recently, I am, I'm currently serving as VP of engineering at a small GovTech startup called SpiderTech. Awesome. So uh, what I guess I'm always interested in that progression. So you started as an individual contributor. Was that a conscious decision on your part to get more into leadership or did it just kind of happen for lack of a better word? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'll tell you when I first started working, I had this kind of arrogant presumption that I was ready to be a leader and that I should be a leader. And it actually took some number of years for that to sort of get beaten out of me <laughs> by by reality, and and so then I made my peace with my my value as an individual contributor, and then I kind of cooled down a bit and realized if I changed my attitude um, and the way I thought about things, I could actually genuinely contribute as a leader. And once that clicked, you know, just naturally the people around me realized, you know, maybe it was time to try me out for some leadership. Uh, you know, type roles, and 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 then I was actually able to um, to do it. So it was almost like I almost kind of gave up on it, which then kind of paradoxically or ironically helped me be prepared for it. Um, and, then, and then it just kind of <laughs> naturally came along. Sorry, I'm just laughing. It's just yeah. like this, the, yeah, this this catch twenty two where it's like, well, if you want it, you can't have it. If you <laughs> right. Don't want it. You can... <laughs> yeah. Um. So so that's do you can you think of what what it was that that made it not really work out in the beginning oh oh absolutely um i was arrogant i you know i i had this chip on my shoulder that you know there's so much i wanted to prove to the world and i kind of just i woke up every morning assuming i was right and i knew the way things needed to be and um and you know that's just a terrible attitude to have and people smell that right away or or, or sort of see that chip on your shoulder right away and you know it's just natural like you you don't want someone like that anywhere around you know, leadership decisions or leadership roles. And so, uh, you know, basically the world was treating me the way it was supposed to. And, you know, it just took me a while to, to mm. come to grips with that. That's so interesting. And so I, I think I want to dig into that, right? Because what's the difference between arrogance and confidence? Because I think you do need confidence as a leader. And I imagine there's a fine line there. Like, so what do you, sure. what do you think is the difference between those two qualities? Sure. Well, you know, a couple of things I'll point out is, you know, at the beginning of our careers, for for all of us, there's so much we don't know, you know, that there's there's experience that we lack. So to then, to you know, to rock up into a place where others have experience and you think you're always right. I mean, that, you know, if you take a step back, I mean, that that's just clearly wrong headed, you know, hmm. um, and, and I was guilty of that. So that, you know, so that's one thing, I guess, is, um, you know, 
confidence without the experience to back it up. I mean, I guess that, you know, another word for that, I think is arrogance. Um, Mm -hmm. And another thing is, you know, looking back on it, I think a lot of times I failed to have empathy for those around me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's different ways that can go wrong. Like even if you're right, but you do it in a rude way, um, you know, sure, maybe you're confident that you're right, but, but if you're upsetting everyone or, you know, short circuiting, you know, short circuiting processes or showing disrespect, you know, um, that, you know, that's terrible too when the when the battle lose the war type of deal yeah exactly yeah and then I mean, you're absolutely right though i mean confidence is great um I, maybe the way i would think about that is you know confidence in working with with others to find the you know the solution that's best for everybody for example confidence in standing up for your ideas in in the face of um conflict but doing it in a healthy way you know that that kind of confidence is great of course mm-hmm. so um yeah, there's a couple of things that you you mentioned that I would, that, that I love um, there. I think real quick that the the idea of being right is so interesting to me. This is something that I see with with some devs and and possibly even more junior devs. The and it's kind of related to this concept that that in like let's just say that that there is some sort of fork in the road or a decision needs to be made. Maybe an approach on you the problem has been identified and then there's a decision that needs to be made on on the solution. And I think sometimes, you know, a dev can think that they are right, that their approach is the right way because it has the most advantages and no disadvantages or something like that. And I think the just the thought that there is a right answer is such an illusion mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I hope more people realize as they you know, as they, as they get experience. And, and I, and I wonder if that's something that can be learned early on, like, can you like accelerate that? Or is that just something that comes from experience? And I hadn't, I had an issue mm. with a, with a dev recently where, um, they, they wanted, they wanted to approach a, a, a solution to a problem in, in a very particular way that, that involved, I don't know if I really want to get too into the weeds, but it involved adding a lot more complexity and integrations to the back end. It, it made the back end have a lot more power, uh, a lot more tightly coupled to another third party service. And mm-hmm. I saw a way of sidestepping all of that. And so when they were proposing their one true way solution, mm-hmm. I was kind of just not really telling them to do anything different, but I was, I was like asking questions, you know, sort of like, well, is there any other way? Like, what if, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was just really, uh, I was struck by how attached they were to like their solution. And it just reminded me of, um, you know, you, you see that picture of, uh, it's like either a duck or a rabbit. Do you know the one that I'm talking about? Like an optical illusion? Or like there's another one that's like an old lady or a young lady. I love that. I love it. Yeah. And and it just reminded me of like almost like the absurdity of someone (laughs) saying like, no, it's a young lady. Like, (laughs) can't you see? Like, (laughs) that's her necklace. Like, she's looking off and like, that's her hair. And you're like, well, maybe it could be an older. And it's like, no, it is like, come on. Like, you must see. Like, it must. And it's like kind of funny to me because that's that's how i think of that it's like there aren't really Mm. right answers and you should be able to see you know both sides of the of the object and recognize that there's merits to both so 
I do I do like that 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 you brought that up like that that attachment to being right. And so sorry, going back to to what you were saying before, um did was that kind of like a linear process for you? Like how did you how did you get over that? Like did you just sort of recognize yeah. next steps or how yeah. did that go? Well, yeah, I'll tell you what happened with me. Um I, I went through a series of short stints at companies. I mean, roughly, you know, my first my first couple jobs were roughly about one year long, which you know, I mean, that's sort of like the bare minimum that you hope to achieve, right? Um, in in every case, um, the reason I left was out of frustration, and it was all kind. It all ended up being kind of the same frustration. It was that you know, wh- why why won't these folks listen to me more? Why don't they realize how right I am? And you know, oh, and they're and they're all you know, they're all they're just all dumb, right? Like that was sort of the um, the, 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 the way I would describe my frustration in, um, in leaving, um, well, you know, after the third, you know, third straight time that happened, I was sort of forced to ask myself, like, what, what am I missing here? And, and one of the things looking back on it that, you know, I, I really have to laugh at myself. Um, one of my genuine questions was like a question to myself rhetorically was how can every boss in the world be so stupid? And, and then I realized like, oh, you know, they can't be because, you know, obviously <laughs> people are out there. There are people out there very successful and and uh, and all of that. And so, so then I so then, you know, that eventually led me to you know a much more productive question of, well, you know, is this all them? Is it all my bosses and the companies that I work for? Or could, could some of it be me? Could like one percent of it be me? You know, <laughs> which mm-hmm. then led to like, oh, my gosh, what could three percent of it be me? And then finally, I got, <laughs> you know, finally. <laughs> After like just being trying to be philosophical and reviewing, you know, all the things that I've been frustrated about, I finally got to the point of like, you know what, could some of this be 99% me? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of answers that were like, yes, you know, that situation was, you know, 99% me, you know, and, um, so it was just kind of like this. Well, internal... I talk about the duck becoming the rabbit, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Um, and that that was hard. You know, I'll, you know, I, I got to tell you, like that was definitely a hard process for me. But then in the end, it was you know it's very rewarding, and it just brought me closer to reality, which of course always helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so it kind of sounds like that that was that was a lot of thinking about the other people. Is this related to? you know, the, the difference between focusing on everything being a technology problem versus how much of, you know, how much the human factor matters? Yes, definitely. You know, I was, I was, um, extremely guilty of something that I see other, um, uh, people who are new in their career sometimes be guilty of too. Um, I, you know, I might be one of the worst case I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, but I, but, you know, I do see this from time to time where you, you come into this industry as an engineer, software developer, and it's so easy to think that the main, you know, the main core thing all the time is going to be the technology. It's going to be, you know, what, well, what language did you choose to use? Or, mm-hmm. you know, did you get that done in five lines of code instead of seven lines of code? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it's so easy to, mm-hmm. and um, now, of course, that stuff is important. Of course, by definition, that's our job, or that's a lot of our job. I, I was, you know, so I was definitely guilty of that um, myself. And you know, you, you can, you know, it, it's possible that the developer you were talking about, for example, you know, they, they might've been so obsessed about things at the technolo- technological level, you know, maybe they were just totally blind to the fact that you were trying to explore other, um, other areas and things like that. And so, um, it is one thing that I would, you know, I definitely would advise, um, people who find themselves, you know, if, 
there's any if there's any risk at all that you're over focusing on that kind of stuff, you know, I would say be be careful and try to be aware. You know, I was just mentioning, you know, you brought up that one developer that you were, you know, you were working through a problem with them, and you, you, I think you were hoping to get them to see some other sides of an issue. And you know, I, I think that's that's actually a great example or illustration of where um, I, I guess I, I can't pretend to know what was going on inside their head exactly, but it could be that they were very focused on the the technology side. And we're just blind to, for example, you as a senior person around them, you know, trying to get them to see other angles and things like that. Um, you know, there's a human factor in there, right? Where you want to collaborate and share ideas on the human level. And there's a very human way to do that. And um, sometimes it can just be too easy to lose sight of that. Mm, yeah. When you're, when you're hiring, do you, do you test for these more human factors? It sounds like it's important to you. And so I would assume you, you aren't just all about algorithms. And and if so, what do you look for? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And and, and yes, absolutely. Like it it is one of, to me, it's one of the most important things to be watching out for um, in the interview process with it, with any particular candidate is that it, you know, I realize it's kind of a more subjective side or fuzzier side. And so it can be hard to be super concrete and objective with this kind of testing. But, you know, if you think about things like what we call behavioral interviews, for example, um, I think that's one of our more formal ways of, um, of watching out for these kinds of things and trying to evaluate a candidate along those dimensions. Um, there's, there's also kind of like ground level things I think you can do depending on the interview. Like, you know, you can, you can challenge someone's idea. Uh, like if they're on the whiteboard or they're, you know, they're working through a code solution in an interview, I think a great test is to challenge them, you know, whether you agree with them or not, mm. uh, you know, kind of role play, <laughs> just pretend that you don't agree with them and see how that goes. You know, for example, I think, you know, that kind of stuff is really important. Oh, man, I, I could not possibly agree with you more. So a lot of how I hire is done through coding challenges, but um, mm. no no, one of the steps is no matter what they come back with, like, even if it's quote unquote, perfect, uh, we will ask the candidate to to make a change. Because Mm. that is really informative uh, about how they react to not necessarily criticism, but something that's going to happen all the time, which is that, okay, yeah, you just did this. But now I need you to change it. Mm, and mm-hmm. how they respond to that is is really important, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I love that. I, th- I think that's I think that's a great uh, mechanism for testing that way. I, I really like it. Yeah. On the on the technical side, too, like what what types of things do you look for for there? I mean, you know, I think we agree that the human factor is really important. But like you said, uh, at the end of the day, most most of the time we're hiring engineers, you know, primarily or at least a good part of it for the the engineering part what what types of skills or or things do you look for sure well when when we're talking more concretely about technical ability and that kind of thing i, I think well, you, you know many years ago i think it was joel spolsky who wrote that you look for someone who's smart and get things gets things mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. and you know i think you know there's lots of ways we can review um at the resume level we can review and look for that kind of pattern of um of I guess what we could call respectable technological achievements um, that show, you know, some consistent pattern of growth and achievement and that kind of thing. And then, of course, when you're when you're testing someone directly, like what you described, for example, you know, whiteboard style tests or coding tests, um, I, you know, I guess one great thing about that environment is it in a lot of cases it's easy to be super concrete, right? Like, does the code run? Uh, you know, does it does it run correctly? Um, all that kind of stuff. And you know, uh, above that, you know. I think we can we can agree, you know, we'd love to see people who are constantly challenging themselves to try new technologies and 
understand those technologies, understand the trade-offs, um, be you know be able to speak um, intelligently about those trade-offs, and then demonstrate that they're they're actually willing to go hands-on and and um, you know put put that to to the advantage of of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then and then when you're when you're putting to, actually here's a question. This might be uh, <laughs> a little bit more philosophical, but how how innate are some of those qualities? Like, let's just say you interview someone and you recognize that they, you know, don't have it. How likely do you think it is that that person could come back in six months, a year, two years, and have those qualities? Oh, like, is wow. that is that possible? Wow, that's a tough question. I, and I don't know if I if I'm even qualified to answer that question. I, I think. I think at the root of that is the the classic uh, what nature versus nurture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, the last time I remember diving into that, like in my mind, there was no clear, you know, answer. Like, you know, there's so many ways to argue it. Um, mm-hmm. One thing, one thing I'll point out is, I, I believe I've seen people be successful doing that. What you just described, mm-hmm. I just, I just don't know the answer to, you know, well, how likely is it? Um, so that's a great question. I, I think I have to defer to people much smarter and knowledgeable than than I on that one. Yeah, that's a very not arrogant answer. I like it. Um, uh, yeah, I I um, I heard something recently. So I'm putting together a special set of episodes for a junior to senior. They should uh, come out pretty soon. I'm pretty excited about it. And, um, you know, it, it's a series called Ask the Experts. And and we get we get answers from some really well known figures in the, the field. And one of the responses, this is a little bit of a preview, is from Scott Hanselman, who says that an important quality of a developer, senior developer, is uh, systems thinking. And, you know, that the the systems thinking part, I do kind of wonder if that's innate, or if that can Mm. be learned, or, or maybe even if it can be learned, maybe what's innate is just how easily it it comes like Mm. if you don't like if you're not naturally oriented towards systems thinking it's kind of like what reading is like if you're dyslexic like you can do Mm. it you know Mm. there's some really ultra successful people who are dyslexic who can you know are just unbelievably you know competent and you know i think there's a really famous lawyer who who is um uh dyslexic i think it's david boyd or something like that and Mm. um but the point is like, is that just always going to be more difficult? Part of the reason why I'm asking right. this question is I do think that some junior devs or aspiring devs get really frustrated that coming into technology, coming into coding feels really hard. And maybe it feels like it's slow to get better. And the types of mistakes that they make, they look around and they feel like other people aren't making them. And it's, oh, it's as if right. they're like playing, like they're playing basketball, but they're, you know, three feet tall and everyone else is six feet tall. And it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get taller. So this is this always going to suck? Mm. And, and I do really wonder about that. My hunch is no. I think I think one of the the things that I believe at my core is that people like humans are really good at learning. Like, right. you know, you put a problem or a set of problems in front of a person and as long as they're engaged and motivated and and you can set up the environment correctly like they're going to get really good at solving those problems like generally 
And so I I think at my core, I don't think that it is, I don't think the ability is innate, um, but I do wonder if if how enjoyable that process is, <laughs> is innate. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, so I guess moving on, um, you, you know, you moved from an individual contributor into, into, um, uh, management. Did you, did you have a tech lead? Like, was there a transition kind of period? Like, was that something that you did? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, um, at about that pivot point, I, I think I could define my role as something like a principal developer slash tech lead. And what, what I'll say about that is, you know, well, first of all, I was so, you know, I'm, I, I am so grateful that I had that opportunity and at the time and in the way that I did. And then what I'll point out is I think that the tech role or, you know, different companies will call this different things, I think. But um, the idea where you're a you're, you're an engineer with, you know, some some amount of experience and seniority and you're now responsible for um helping to organize the output of other engineers while also uh, uh, maintaining some sort of relationship with the non-engineering side of things. And that's kind of how I see, roughly speaking, in the, the tech lead role. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is that is a fantastic opportunity for someone who's moving from junior to senior and possibly interested in something that's, that's more for, it's a more formal um, management type responsibility. I think it's a great stepping stone for that. If nothing else, to just try it out and see how they like it because it's, um, I mean, it really is that kind of a stepping stone. It, you know, it really is this kind of like, um, you know, one foot in the IC world, but you know, one foot kind of testing out the more more leadership and management. Um, and and so, you know, when I realized that, that was how, you know, I just ended up on, a, you know, I was on, a, I was building a team where I just ended up defining that very concretely as, you know, if if you want to grow, if you want to try to grow in that direction, or if you just want to test it out. Um, let's have you be a tech lead and take on those kinds of responsibilities. And it's just a great proving ground for that. Yeah. I have a, a bunch of engineers that are group have, they're into in a bunch of different groups. And I really, I really want a number of them to step up into that tech lead role, because I think from a, a management leadership perspective, it's, it's very useful to, worry about fewer moving parts mm-hmm. it's kind of a, mm-hmm. a a weird way to put it but but what i mean by that is is if all of the engineers are are operating um independently and and you're managing them then you know it, it you're just thinking about all of the engineers like all at once but if you have a competent tech lead then you can mostly just worry about that tech lead and they can worry about the other people on the team. And I think that can reduce a lot of the, the management burden. And so I think from looking at it from top down, I think there's a lot of demand for somebody to, you know, in my, especially, I mean, I can speak personally, there's like, I would really love for somebody to step up and to take that, that on. However, I'm always really hesitant about pushing people into that role because mm-hmm. I know it was always very difficult for me to do both the hands-on individual contributor type work and more of the management organization work at the same time. I think the way that my brain works is I can do one or the other and not really both. Um, and so I'm always hesitant to push people 
into that role. But have you seen have you seen qualities or methods or any techniques that help being in that role be easier? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think the way you put it was great. Um, you know, you're kind of describing the benefits of delegating in this way from 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 your perspective or our perspectives as managers, let's say. And I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with that. I, and I thought the way you put it was really good. Um, and I and I also totally agree with you. We always have to be careful about pushing anyone into anything. Um, and it, and it does seem like you know our industry is littered with uh, you know unfortunately littered with examples of engineers being pushed into. Um, more management or leadership <laughs> positions and burning out or, you know, hating it or, you know, leaving it, you know, yeah. um, and everyone loses, it seems like in those situations, which is unfortunate. So, <laughs> um, yeah. It so, makes me think of, uh, I think it's called the Peter principle where like you right. get promoted to your highest levels of, of, of incompetence or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's, it's very, it's very dark, but yeah. <laughs> So, so I'm totally with you on that. And, you know, I think probably you and I can both agree, like, you know, things to look out for there. Like if someone kind of sort of raises their hand, you know, and also you, you just have the intuition that they, you know, they, they could at least do a fair shot at it. You know, that's probably, then that's probably good, you know, good, good thing we're trying. Or if you, if you, um, casually, or I guess, you know, um, in a mild sense, if you invite someone to try it for a short period of time and they sound more positive than neutral you know, um, mm-hmm. then maybe you've de-risked that, but I, but I totally agree with you that there, there is that, there is that risk of pushing someone, you know, too hard, too fast, or just into an area they, you know, they don't want or isn't good for them. I agree with that. Um, but back to your question. Yeah. You know, th- this was actually, this was a lesson that, um, one of my previous bosses taught me very directly that really helped me out in terms of what are, what are some key factors that are in that role as a tech lead, like what will help make it work. And, um, what 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 my boss taught me that 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 I think will just remain with me as long as I care about the tech lead role is um, the way you want to establish the flow with with the product side um, and the business side um, the way you want the way you want that relationship to work in a concrete way is you want the business folks to own and define the why meaning the motivation of like why are we even doing this thing why are we building this product or this feature um, then they'll communicate that to the tech lead. And it's the tech lead's job to understand that and, and absorb it. Then the two of them need to work together on the on the on the on the um, on the what you know what actually needs to get built here to to satisfy the motivation, which I'll come back to in a second. And then the third the third and final step is the engineering side owns the um, you know the hands on um, the, the how how does it get done at the technical level um, mm. you, know, you know all of that. And going back to that middle part, so that middle part ends up being. Uh, in in my opinion, just so critical and so key that middle part where the two sides are establishing the what what needs to be done. Um, that part needs to be just what I would call relentlessly collaborative. Both sides need to be in con- in in touch with each other pretty much all the time. Um, they need to be seeing eye to eye. If they ever don't see eye to eye, that needs to be corrected as soon as possible. Um, and and that's sort of the key of the relationship. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of that role, just boils down to. Um, those three steps and, and with a lot of focus on maintaining the health of that middle one where there's the, 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 the integration there. Um, and, and, uh, I, you know, I just, I really appreciate it that, you know, the way I learned that lesson, it was sort of like, you know, not a moment too soon when I learned it, it and got me out of some hot water, got my team out <laughs> of some hot water. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's just something I've always kept an eye out for since then. Yeah. I, um, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot there. Um, the, the relationship between product and engineering, I think, has such a capacity for causing gigantic problems or <laughs> yeah. making things absolutely great. 
that it is just one of these, yeah, one of these points that is so worthwhile in investing time and energy into to make sure that that's a great relationship. I think the the payoffs and the advantages from doing that right are are huge. So I really like that you point that out. I think typically I've I've thought about the different hats of of product management, project management, and engineering management as you know, product is is the what, project management is the the when, and engineering mm. is the how. But I mm, kind of mm, like mm. I, I sort of like the way that you put it, where the what is actually the intersection between engineering and products. What what kinds of what kinds of discussions and what kinds of collaboration like have you seen in that in that little middle intersection part? Yeah. Well, uh, first, let me start with the uh, like the anti patterns, like the na- like the like when you know it's bad. Um, yeah. Uh, so you know, those are you- kind of fun as long as it's <laughs> happening to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know, you'll you'll hear you know you'll hear engineers who are something like you know tech leads. You know, on the negative side, you might hear things like I don't I don't know why product mm. wants this or I don't understand mm. why they don't just do X or why are they mm. doing why are they doing thing Y that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, then you know something has gone horribly wrong, and you're going to have to step in and you know make sure that you fix it immediately, basically. Um, so that's or you know if if engineers feel like they're just being code monkeys, for example, and they don't have any input into that into that um, what um, or they're being left out of the why too much, um, you know that that's another you know uh, red flag. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know similar frustrations on the product side, they don't you know they don't feel heard or satisfied or you know wh- whatever or, you know they're out of the loop, they feel out of the loop. Or, you know that. You know, there's there's infinite <laughs> list of things there. Um, when you know something's wrong, you got to fix that. Um, okay, so then what do you look for that's healthy? Well, you know, some great things are when. Um, you, well, here's a magical thing that, like, I you know, I think all of us should always be sh- trying to strive for in that area. It's when an engineer says to their product counterpart, "Oh, what if we add this thing or do it that way? That'll satisfy your needs even better than what you were asking for." And, you know, some of the magic there is, you know, that the tech lead has internalized the motivation of product. And because, because they have their hands on the tech, they're able to see things that product wouldn't be able to see. They're able to see opportunities that could be, you know, could be seized upon just using, using technology in order to satisfy the motivation that maybe, maybe product wouldn't have ever thought of. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of companies that, that were, that have been massively successful by leveraging that. Like, I think if you look at the early days of Google, you know, for example, there's stories out of Google where like, you know, that kind of stuff was just happening all the time. Um, mm, yeah. maybe, maybe even continues totally. to happen. And so, yeah. So like, those are, those are some things that come to mind. I think the important thing there, right. Is that, that engineers can have a huge amount of influence and to some extent power to, to shape product if they if they want it like if if an engineer is engaged and willing to look at it from product's perspective or the customer's perspective hopefully those two are are similar right um they they really have the power to come up with pretty pretty great solutions approaches to to those those the problems or the challenges or the opportunities that the the organization has i completely completely agree with that and you know kind of like what you were saying too i mean some of the symptoms that things aren't going well 
I always think of as this imbalance that that if product is too strong or if engineering is too strong, mm-hmm. um, you wind up with with certain situations, right? If like product is really too strong, you might wind up in a situation where, you know, the the example that, that I've heard is, is, you know, it's like, well, you know, our, our app has chest pains and I, I did a Google search and it needs a triple bypass. So engineer, <laughs> let's, let's go ahead and, and do that. Right. As opposed right. to, yeah. you know, something that's, that's, you know, and in, the, and, and in that case, a product is really strong. The engineer might be thinking like, well, that's pretty excessive and involved and, that's going to be really expensive and dangerous and but okay like i you know i don't want to argue with you because i know how that goes so we're just going to going to give you what you want and as opposed to i guess the other side where <laughs> i always see this when engineering is too strong you just you don't see any features that are that are visible to the to the customer get built mm-hmm. like all you ever see is mm-hmm. like all right we just finished, you know, completely rewriting our app from Angular to React. And now <laughs> it's time to completely rewrite it in Svelte. And, uh, yeah. you know, like, you know, you know, I know we just finished rewriting our backend from PHP to Node, but everyone's on Hacker News loves Rust. So we got to hold off on features that the user can see because we got to we got to make our backend faster and get rid of that tech debt, you know, and, and that doesn't that doesn't fly either I, I think like you said the 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 ideal situation is something along the lines of hey this is this is what we want to achieve this is why we're trying to achieve it and the engineer can say like oh well you know if we just do this this simple thing we can wind up getting that and this other thing that you wanted basically for free and then it's like everybody wins i love i love that I, yeah. it, I was just going to say your examples were so good. You you actually got my <laughs> my my blood pressure started to raise. My my heart started racing because you know your examples are you know they're born of experience. I've been there too, and yeah, all those things are can be so bad. Or like refactoring becomes a dirty word, for example. Uh, yeah, I'm totally yeah. with you. Yeah. Um. So what what types of processes or like if you do want a healthy team or like team culture. What what types of things do you see as being effective? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I mean, there's so many things there. You know, you think about how you know what is the what is the team culture? How are people how are people working together? Um, and all of those things. You know, one thing I've come to really appreciate as a as a key mechanism within a team's process is what some people call a retrospective. You know, the idea that the team gets together and goes over um, the past, whatever it might be, you know, no, you know, ca- number of calendar days or, you know, number of features or the last sprint. Um, you know, I think in the classical agile sense, a retrospective is oriented around a sprint. Um, that, uh, you know, I've come to, I've come to see that as, as, as maybe one of the single most important mechanisms you can have on a team. I, I think there's just so much there that happens in a good, healthy retrospective that is, um, that is like a linchpin of, 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 I think all the things you listed, you know, a good team environment, uh, a productive team, um, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And so how do you, yeah. So how do you do a, a good retrospective? Like, is there like a resource or some kind of framework that people should apply? Or is it just as simple as, you know, stop and yeah, every, every once in a while after a, a sprint and, and just talk about what happened? Like, how do you approach that? Yeah. Well, so if you if you go to the literature, uh, there seems to be some consistent ingredients that you know I, I agree are, are very very helpful. So um, 
imagine the team coming together and going over, okay, what, what happened since the last retrospective and put it in some key, some, some, uh, main buckets or categories. Uh, you can think of, of course, all the good fun stuff, you know, all the successes and shout outs and, you know, fortunate events and happy things. Um, that's one bucket. Um, another bucket would be, um, just, just things that are of, of note of interest, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, milestones that the whole team should know about or, or, or that, you know, that kind of thing. Then the third bucket where I think, I think so much pay dirt can be found is the, the hard stuff, you know, the failures, the ugly things, um, the things that went wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. and that, you know, the, 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 those first two buckets tend to be fairly straightforward and easy. You know, if you're working with good people and all of that, you know, people are just going to naturally give each other shout outs and all that kind of stuff. But the, you know, the, the bad stuff, the hard stuff, things that, that I think we should all have an eye out for is, okay, when something goes wrong, are we accountable for it? Are the owners accountable for it? Do they maintain their ownership throughout all of that and explain what happened and help the team learn from it or not? You know, is there an avoidance of ownership and avoidance of accountability? Um, if you do have accountability and people are keeping their names on things and, and learning, you know, do, do you truly learn consistently over time? Um, you know, of course that's, that's a big goal. Another thing is, um, is it a, is it a good, healthy culture where, you know, you're not, you're not blaming people too much, right? We want this kind of like blameless postmortem kind of approach where we're all learning together. We're all, you know, being gracious to each other and, and, you know, allowing, you know, understanding we're, we're all going to make mistakes and allowing ourselves to learn from them together and all of that. So what, yeah. What makes it so valuable? Like, is it that accountability? Like what, why do you think that this is, this has such a positive effect on teams? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think that's one of the, one of the big things. And, and, and here's, here's one way to look at it. Um, imagine that you're my boss and, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm making these mistakes that are, that are kind of frustrating and I just kind of, I just kind of keep making them and, you know, you, you, you check with me to, to find out why. And I kind of just brush it off and maybe make excuses for myself and keep making these mistakes. Well, you know, that, that can kind of go on forever, but here's the thing. If I know, um, that I'm going to have to answer to these mistakes to the whole team on a regular basis, mm -hmm. um, I'm probably going to just, just kind of like naturally being a human, I'm probably going to want to try to avoid those mistakes because, you know, I know I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to be accountable to the team that I'm on where, you know, I, I, I want everyone to see me as valuable and good. And, you know, hopefully I, you know, I want to be valuable and good to the team. Um, so, you know, the accountability, you can kind of see that as a, as a floor, um, for, for performance. Now I'll admit that what I just described, it might sort of sound a little bit negative, but you know, I think if you take a step back and think about it, it's just kind of like the natural way that we, you know, we want to work together as humans. We want, we want to establish that kind of floor for performance using accountability in that way. And then of course there is always the positive side. I mean, remember in these retrospectives, we do want to have shout outs and everything when people achieve things. So we do have the more positive side of it, you know, the positive reinforcement of when we do good things, when we improve and accomplish things, you know, we're going to be, um, we're going to be recognizing that, uh, you know, as a team together. Yeah. I think what I really like about that is it, for me, it's that improvement comes from learning and the learning comes from feedback loops. And so right. as an individual, you know, you can't, like, if you were to, if you were to try and get really good at playing darts, like it would, it would happen. If you just had a dartboard and every day you, you played darts, you'd get, you'd get better because you've got that instant feedback loop. You, you throw the dart, it lands on the board and you know, okay, you know, I need to make the adjustments and how I throw and, and all of that. And over time you get better. But if right, you, yeah. if you played in the dark and you never got that feedback, you'd never get 
better ever. Like it would just kind of be impossible. Um, and the the longer that feedback loop, uh, the slower the learning. And so I really like the way that you're talking about this is as an organization, if you want to improve and get that learning, you need an organizational feedback loop. And I think that's I think that's a, a great a great call out. Um, hey, Aaron, this has been so great. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, thanks so much, David. So um, please just go to my LinkedIn and uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, always happy to talk with folks that way. Awesome. I will put that in the show notes. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, David. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Recruiting at tech events can be one of the best ways to find and hire senior software engineers. Unfortunately, it's easy to make simple mistakes and wind up with no leads. Grab my free 12-point recruiting checklist to maximize your sponsorship investment at superstruct.tech slash event dash recruiting dash checklist.